Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Daniel Williams, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Terranova in Saratoga. And uh, this morning, before we get into the Word, we're going to start off a little bit differently. Um, last week, during announcements, I had shared with you uh, that that afternoon, we were doing uh, an elder assessment for Reuben Todd and um, asked you to be praying for that as we worked through a pretty robust application that kind of went through his understanding and Nicole's as well, his wife, doctrine and theology and pastoral theology and got into kind of the pilgrim theology of his own journey and their own journey together. And so we were asking for prayer for that time. And I would say that it went really well and we enjoyed that time uh, with them. And so this morning, we are going to um, give you a chance to get to know them a little bit better. Uh, and so I'm going to invite uh, Reuben and Nicole up at this point in time. They can join me on stage here. And as they're getting settled in, um, I figured that I wouldn't take for granted that everybody necessarily understands what I mean, what we mean at Terra Nova when we talk about an elder. Um, and so just kind of a brief overview of what that looks like and means here at Terra Nova Church. When we talk about an elder, uh, we really mean a pastor, or if we're to use First Timoth or First Peter 5 language, an overseer. So elder pastor, uh, or excuse me, elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer. We see those as synonymous terms that are used in the New Testament all meaning the same thing. We don't have an elder board as something separate from pastors here at Terranova Church. Um, we, we look at those as all the same. And so this is a process that um, Reuben is, uh, has been in uh, and is continuing to, plore, uh, to explore here at Terranova to become an elder or a pastor here at Terra. Uh, one other thing that I thought would be helpful to share years ago, I heard this distinction. All of us are called to this responsibility to shepherd or to pastor other people, all of us, just like evangelism, right? Like some people are really good at it, but all Christians are called to share their faith. All are called to shepherd or pastor other people. Um, not all are necessarily gifted, right? Then there's the gift of service, the gift of evangelism, the gift of pastoring and shepherding. And then thirdly, there's the office of, of pastor or elder, and that's what we're talking about here this morning, all right? Not all that are gifted uh, at pastoring or shepherd serve in the office of elder, but Anyone who is serving in the office of an elder has some giftings in that area of pastoring and shepherding. When it comes to exploring um, qualifications, what qualifies someone to be an elder or a pastor? We use kind of a rubric of these five C's, and they don't all directly come out of the Bible. Um, they do in principle, not necessarily in word. The first one, of course, does, and that would be to kind of assess, does this person have the character of somebody who um, would be an elder, right? First Timothy 3, Titus, these different qualifications given for character. Um, next, we would think about calling. And that's, that's largely upon the individual to discern with the help of the elders and the community at large to help affirm, right? The calling, the specific calling by God to that role. We consider competency. Does this person have the ability, have they demonstrated the, the ability to be able to do things like teach and preach, which a pastor is called to, uh, to shepherd other people and care for souls, to lead, have those gifts of leadership? We consider capacity. Somebody may have everything else from the above, but in a season of life where they just don't have the capacity to give to a local church what's necessary to be a pastor. And then we consider compatibility. 
Again, everything else above may be checked, boxes, but there needs to be compatibility not only on the primary doctrines that all Christians should believe, but even secondary doctrines that are important in a particular local church context, as well as vision for, for mission um, and uh, the DNA of the local church. Is there an alignment there? So just to give you an idea of some of the things that we have been um, working on and assessing over the past couple of years, um, not to steal any of their thunder, I'm not actually going to ask them much about this part of their journey, Reuben came to me about two and a half years ago, three, three years ago. We did a state of the church message here. We try to do one of those every year where we kind of give you an update on how things are going, what's going on. One of the things that Pastor Matt and I shared was our sense of uh, the, the need to have more elders. We believe at Terra Nova and biblically that a healthy church has a plurality of elders, multiple pastors, right? There's a, there's a um, wisdom in a multitude of counsel. We've longed for that for a while now. And so when we shared that about three years ago, Reuben came to us and said, I've not really considered this strongly before for one reason or another, but I just sense the Lord's prompting me to, to really step in uh, and explore this potential calling as a pastor here at Terranova Church. And so since then, that's looked like things like you, you've seen him preach at times. He's, he's taught before in our nucleus class. Um, he's been a part of many planning meetings with Pastor Matt and myself where we've kind of laid out vision for the church in our annual calendar. He's been a part of retreats. He went on our, elder, uh, our network elder retreat. We have three Terranova churches. He went on that uh, this past January or February. January. He's been through what we call an Explore Eldership Collective, which was a year-long, pretty intensive process. Uh, Paul Fekita was involved with that as well, along with Matt and myself that just really went deep in kind of examining the character side of things, like what's deep down in, in his pilgrim journey um, and in his soul. And so there's been a lot. And usually we have the application piece that we did last week at the front end of this process. It just happened to work out that we did it more towards the end this time of the process. Yet there's still a little bit to go. And so I'll share with you guys in a few minutes kind of where we go from here at kind of the tail end of this journey for Reuben and his family. But what I said was I wanted to give you guys a chance to get to know them a little bit. Many of you do. Some of the things that they share are not going to be new to some of you. Um, but others of you might be newer to Tara or just haven't had the blessing of the opportunity to spend much time with them. So I have a few questions for them this morning that will just help you to get to know the Todds uh, a little bit better. So with that in mind, knowing that um, some people here aren't familiar with your backstory, <laughs> um, this photo ops up front here. <laughs> Uh, he was trying to be discreet, and now I pointed him out. But um, just help, help those who don't know you guys to get to know you a little bit when it comes to who, who is your family, um, what do you do for work, uh, what, and what brought you to the area to begin with, because you guys came about five years ago now, right? Okay. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Um, so Nicole and I have been married for 23 years, right? Yeah, okay, good. Um, <clears throat> We have three children. Uh, oddly enough, none of them are here today. Uh, my oldest son, Caleb, uh, is visiting Nicole's sister and our brother-in-law in, -law in uh, South Carolina, getting some warmth for the week. And the, the twins, David and Sarah, um, they went to prom last night and got home at 3 in the morning back to the school. So uh, we let them sleep in because we're... Because uh, we didn't want to have that fight this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I wasn't going to say it that way, but sure. <laughs> <clears throat> Honesty is one of the things we value as a potential elder at Terranova. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, like, like Pastor Daniel said, we moved here about five years ago. I, um, 
I took uh, a position at Christ the King Center. I'm the executive director at Christ the King Center in Greenwich, which is a, a conference center and a camp and retreat, um, healing ministry, many, um, many things there. Uh, some of you are familiar with it because that's where we do our um, outdoor services in the summertime, uh, among other things. We had a men's retreat there a couple years ago as well. Um, so that's, um, that's the sort of work I do. This is the fourth center that I've been the director of. Um, so that's been the, the sort of the, the life's call that I've been in, um, which is one of the reasons why I've never explored being an elder before, because I had this sort of big ministry um, that I was already involved in. Um, Nicole works at Skidmore in the Career Development Center. And uh, she's been there a couple years now. Three, three, three years. May, three years, yeah, three years in May. So, yeah, was that, was that the whole question? Yeah, yeah that's okay. great. All right. Um, and then I think too Brought that wasn't, uh, wasn't part of it. What brought us to Tara? Yeah, well, this? sure. <laughs> well, we we um, were visiting around when we first moved here. We visited a lot of churches, and I think Tara came up through the Adams. Aaron Adams had visited the first Sunday we came. It was on the big screen, and Ed Marcel was speaking, but the music was still really beautiful. And then I think we hopped around for. Yeah, we shopped. We did, we did, we shopped, yeah. we hopped around, but then we ultimately ended up back here, and it was the kids' choice. We left it up to them because they were um, teenagers and we wanted them to be comfortable as well, yeah. and everyone was affirming yeah. that this was where we were to land, so. It wasn't, wasn't totally up to the kids. Well, but sure. was there, the, <laughs> we, we kind of narrowed it down to, to a couple or three churches that, you know, were, um, had, had what we were looking for was a, a sense of community and vibrant um, Bible-centered preaching and, uh, and, a, and a music program that would, you know, would be inspiring. So those are all things. And, but then when we've, we said we want, I wanted them to be comfortable, <clears throat> not knowing how involved I would be every Sunday at, my, at the center, I didn't, want, I didn't want to have to be sending them somewhere they didn't want to go so if, if that came to that. So. That makes sense. And then kind of building off of that, like you, you wouldn't be considering exploring eldership at a church that you hadn't grown to value over the years. So I'm just curious, and both of you, again, feel free to speak to this. What is it that you've most come to value in your experience with our community here at Terranova over the last four to five years? Um, so for me, honestly, it's been the authentic community. And what I mean by that is that um, I really appreciate the humbleness of Pastor Matt and Pastor Daniel and everyone that we've grown to love here in our tribe and other church members that we can laugh together and cry together, we can confront sin together, and that the goal is reconciliation and growing together closer in Christ, just the, the real life on life together. Yeah, I would, I would certainly echo that. We've, we've definitely made a lot of friends here and built a built a rich community. I think some of the things that drew us to Terra in the first place, the, um, the Christ-centeredness of the whole, um, the whole, all of it from tribes to Sunday morning to, to just the, the DNA of the church being Christocentric, that, that idea that, you're, that we're focused on the Bible and, and, and applying it to our lives and, and growing in discipleship and um, as a constant, you know, renewal uh, pattern that uh, those are the things that, you know, that drew us here, but we, we continue to be led by and uh, inspired by and, um, you know, driven by, so, yeah. Good. And then I guess this one's directed a little bit more at you, Ruben. Okay. Um, and that would just be when you think about the possibility of stepping into being a pastor here at Terra, what most excites you or do you feel best suited for based upon how God's wired you? And the flip side of that coin would be, in your honest moment, what's most daunting? Okay. 
Um, well, like, like Nicole said um, a few moments ago, we've, we've really appreciated, and I'm sure many in the room would agree, we've appreciated the, the humility and authenticity with which you and Matt have been pastoring the church. And um, I, I feel like, I think that's one of the things we've talked about through Elder Collective was that I, I feel like being able to join that and to come alongside you guys and to be part of that, that pastoring team, that it's not a, this is not a new thing that I'm taking on all by myself, that this is, uh, this is you know, me joining and coming alongside you guys and offering uh, perhaps a, a new perspective or a different perspective and perhaps a different skill set or a, certainly a different set of experiences and background. Um, to be able to just add the wisdom to those conversations. Um, that's, uh, and, and of course, continue to, to, um, to preach on occasion, and uh, I've enjoyed those, ex, uh, those opportunities, um, continue to lead tribe. <clears throat> uh, as far as my place on the team, uh, you know, um, my friend Paul Feckett says that I have a grandfatherly tone, uh, even though we're the same age, Paul, but um, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Love you, brother. <laughs> so just, yeah, just, uh, just being able to, to come alongside and offer what I can yeah. in that way. Um, as far as daunting, um, I, think, I think it's the other side of that exact same coin. I would, I would never want to be um, like put on some pedestal or have some set of ex expectations as you know, some sort of professional Christian that, that I'm, still on a, I'm still on a pilgrim journey and, uh, I'm, and I'm still going to make mistakes and say the wrong thing. And, um, and just being able to, um, just being able to have that relationship with with everyone, you guys and Nicole and anyone that we might interact with in the church, that that uh, they that there's no expectation of like being perfect or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I think that's both questions. Yeah, it is. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. That I think gives Matt and I words to what we feel or want to be our kind of relational dynamic with people in our church family too. So. Yeah. Another question for you. This might be the most important one, and I didn't give you a heads up to that, to this. And that is, if you had to face off in battle against one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses, which would you choose? <laughs> Say, okay, repeat the question. <laughs> one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses. This is important. This is pass-fail right here. I'd probably choose the horse-sized duck. Why? Because it's, it's, it's just one thing. Yes. It's just, it's okay. just one thing. Fair enough. Thank you for being a good sport. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah. I took a risk with that one. Sure. You handled it well. Yeah. So thank so, you. Oh, go yeah. ahead. No, just, uh, I often say like at work, there's like a thousand things to do. And if it was only any one thing, I could probably handle it. But it's just uh, always just being barbed by the dozen things and so that's the one big duck not a fair enough ducks. the one other time i've ever heard that question asked the person responded oh definitely the one 100 of anything is terrifying so <laughs> yeah. to your point yeah. <laughs> thank you guys sure uh, it was good to get to know you a little bit better and i hope that everybody who hasn't had a chance to gets a chance to spend time with you guys and get to know you guys and it's been a pleasure to be on this journey with you so thanks yeah um so one of the things that I'd mentioned is that while Reuben has informally and increasingly in a formal sense been in this process for the last few years, um, Matt, which stand should I use? Which stand should I use? Okay, thanks. Um, there, it's not yet complete. 
uh, as a church that is our polity, which is, just means our church, form of church government, is Christ-centered, elder-led, and staff-run. Um, that means that at the end of the day, we believe, biblically speaking, when we look at how the early church functioned, the elders are ultimately the ones that would determine, do we, do we lay hands on this person or not? Like, is God calling this person, and are we confirming that? But we think that the tension that exists there um, with other truths in Scripture is something called the priesthood of believers, which is that everybody in the body of Christ in the local church who's a Christian has the Holy Spirit in them, and that we can't make our decisions in any kind of an informed sense without the input of that local body, the, the members of the family of our church. And so for the next four or five months or so, um, I'm going to be going away on sabbatical, and so we didn't want to you know, ordain um, Reuben during that time, obviously. But it's, it's just an opportunity for you guys to step in. And honestly, um, if, if Reuben and his family are seeking to discern calling and the elders are seeking to confirm that sense of calling, we're looking for affirmation from the body at large. Um, this is a great opportunity for you to affirm, uh, come to the elders and affirm, yeah, we've seen these qualities in this man. We've experienced this. We, it, it makes sense to us or to, to go to them and encourage um, Reuben and his family because there will be hard days. Uh, there are many other experiences in life like this, right? Like marriage, for example. There'll be hard seasons and times in marriage where you just need to fall back on a clear sense of, yeah, God was in this. He was leading us to this. And so we just need to double down and trust him in this. And it's also an opportunity over the next several months, if, there, if you have any concerns for any reason, to come to us and share those as well. We want to hear from the church family at large. You have an important voice and part to play in this process of helping elders at Terra Nova to be surfaced and to confirm that sense of calling they have, okay? So please take that charge seriously. We want to hear from you guys. We don't want to make these decisions in isolation. We haven't, so you know um, the, the benefit of being a network of churches is that Reuben has been on things like our network uh, pastor retreat, um, so he's, the other pastors have gotten to know him and speak into his life and even start to really confirm that sense of calling. Pastor Paul Gordon from Terra Nova North Adams came over and was a part of the assessment last week, so that was helpful. Um, Jasmine Schwartz was a part of that, Matt's wife as well, because it's important for us to hear from the pastor's wives. Leah would have joined as well, my wife, but she wasn't feeling well. So we have been getting input, but we want to extend that and expand that to the church at large, okay? So we're inviting you into that process. So that's just a little bit of an update as to this journey that Ruben's been on. And, uh, and we'll continue to fill you in and, and look forward to seeing where that goes. We're going to transition now into a time of uh, being in God's Word together, continuing on this journey in Holy Week, um, a little bit further on, as Pastor Matt said, than Palm Sunday is where we currently will find ourselves today. So if you want to go ahead and, and turn and get ready um, and put your thumb in Matthew 27, we'll be at, uh, near the end of that chapter. As we kind of prepare ourselves for considering what's going on in these 11 or 12 verses, we'll be, we'll be in in a moment. Psalm 23 is a psalm many are familiar with, beloved psalm uh, by God's people, a well-known psalm by people even outside of the context of church. And one of the things in Psalm 23 that David writes about is the valley of the shadow of death. It's a very vivid metaphor that he uses to describe a reality most of us, really probably all of us, will, will or are experiencing in life. It's a vivid metaphor that pictures mountains enclosed all around us. 
so that it's, it's hard to see beyond the horizon because your view is blocked by these mountains. It's, it's a vivid metaphor talking about this shadow that probably is caused by this rising landscape all around us, cutting off the sun from being able to highlight and illuminate things as much as we would like so that we can't see what's around the next bend. In this valley, we probably feel things like being trapped at times, sense of isolation or being alone, being afraid, insecure, uncertain as to what lies ahead, maybe hopeless, maybe even a sense of despair. I don't know what prompted David to write this, but there were no shortage of valleys of shadows of death for him to have walked through. Whether that was when King Saul was pursuing him before David was king to try to eliminate him so that he couldn't ascend to the throne which he'd been anointed to sit on, whether it was when David committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and sent Uriah, her husband, to the front lines of battle where inevitably he would die and so really committed murder in the dark days ahead for David as he was confronted with that sin by the prophet Nathan and in his heart he felt the displeasure of God and the guilt for those things that felt he described like his bones being broken. That was a valley of shadow of death for him. Or whether it be when his own son Absalom drove him out of his own kingdom while he was king and, um, and pursued his life once again. Lots of these types of occasions for David. Not unique to him, though. Maybe those particular circumstances. But which of us has not been there? Maybe a marriage falling apart. Maybe the loss of work and an uncertainty as to how our needs are going to be met. Maybe an addiction that we are enslaved to and we don't see any way out of. Maybe a bad sickness that we've gone through or devastating pain that we're living with currently. Maybe the death of a loved one. The list could go on. Well, in this next scene in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 27, there is a valley of death in view. Jesus has just died, and Matthew now gives us the details surrounding his burial, and it's a somber time. It's a dark time for those who are involved in Jesus' life. And in one form or another, all the players in this scene that we're about to see are impacted by the death of Jesus. And they all respond differently from one another in ways we may be able to relate to personally if we have eyes to see this morning. There are many different responses we can have to walking through our own valleys of the shadow of death. We can sometimes try to escape it in various ways, almost always an unhealthy approach to dealing with our valleys. We can resign ourselves to it, giving up hope, and in so doing, never leave it in a perpetual state of depression and discouragement and hopelessness. We can live in a constant state of denial to our valleys, pretending things aren't as they are and never dealing head-on with the valley that we're in, numbing ourselves to it, to whatever it is, the sin or the fear or the pain that we're going through. Some even learn to embrace it, becoming so deluded as to think that this valley is actually their true home, the true reality, the reality that they should be living for. Jesus remarks on this, I think in his words in John 3.19 when he talks about people who learn to love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. They're living in an inverse reality. They just learn to embrace the valley of darkness. And what's really sobering is that we may have learned to deal with our valleys for so long in any one of these or other ways that we don't even recognize that's how we're approaching it anymore. 
So what I want to do this morning is I want to use this passage in Matthew as a mirror that can um, show us ourselves, that we can see ourselves in through this passage, but also as a compass to kind of show us how to navigate through the valley of death, the valley of darkness that we encounter. So I want to do this by examining six different responses to the valley of death as we'll look at the 11 disciples, kind of the inner core. We'll look at Joseph of Arimathea, who's kind of newly on the scene in this passage. We'll look at the Marys. There's a couple of Marys who are in view here, also disciples. The chief priests and Pharisees, Pilate. And then ultimately, we will even consider God himself in his own response in the valley of the shadow of death. So Matthew chapter 27. And the natural break here would be Um, to pick up in verse 57, but I want to back up two verses. So we're going to start in verse 55 because those two verses will be important for us to have in view today as we consider the response of these various people to the valley of death. Matthew 27, starting in verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body, and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, or as I've done some study here, it seems like the more likely interpretation, and you probably have a footnote, is take a guard of soldiers. So Pilate's supplying here. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they, so they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So we have six responses to this valley of death to consider this morning. Three of them are from different disciples in view, followers of Jesus who loved him. Two of them are from unbelievers in view, And then we have God's perspective in all of this. So first, the 11 disciples, who when we look at them, we could say we're despairing of this valley of death. Now listen, the disciples aren't explicitly mentioned in in this passage. That's kind of the point, is their absence from this scene, the 11 I'm talking about here. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, that's kind of the last time that the majority of them, we really have any knowledge of their whereabouts. After Jesus is arrested in this scene, he, you know, they, they pull out, some of them pull out their weapons. Jesus orders them to put those weapons away. That's, 
It's not what he's looking for, is that kind of defense. And we're told, then all the disciples left him and fled. Peter apparently hung around nearby long enough to overhear Jesus' trials until when he was confronted by someone who was there about whether he was one of the disciples, he denies this three times. Then the rooster crows, and he's reminded of Jesus' words that he would deny him three times, and then a rooster would crow. And so he goes out and he weeps bitterly. And then Peter's out of the scene. And we don't hear from them again until after Jesus' resurrection. When after he, Jesus appears to Mary, she runs to find the disciples who we find are huddled all together in this room and, and they are, are mourning and they're weeping and she tells them these words of Jesus having risen and they don't believe her. John's gospel fills in some details and tells us Jesus, now resurrected, comes to them himself and we're given this detail that the doors uh, to this room are locked because of their fear of the Jews. Luke's gospel tells us not only were these disciples huddled away, but a, a couple of others were actually miles away by now, headed to Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, trying to get out of Dodge. This is the response of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. And I want to be careful again to point out, this doesn't mean they weren't believers. This group loved Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But their response here in the valley of death is a picture of despair. Out of fear, out of confusion, maybe even a sense of betrayal. Like, why would he have done this? He didn't have to do this. He had the power not to die. Why did he let this happen? They're, they're a picture of despair here. And when people despair, they tend to do one of two things. Either isolate and lock themselves away, or respond rashly and try to outrun their sorrow. Both of these responses are in view here, and neither are bringing them anywhere close to Jesus. In fact, were it not for his grace to pursue them, they would have been in no position to have encountered the risen Christ. So that's the first reaction response we see to the valley of the shadow of death here, is we can respond with despair through either isolating or trying to outrun our sorrow in unhealthy ways. Secondly, we see Joseph of Arimathea, who seemed to be kind of resigned to the valley of death. Now, we don't know a ton about Joseph. This is really the first time he appears on the scene. But what we do know here in Matthew's gospel, we're told he's a disciple of Jesus. From the other gospels, he's described as a good and righteous man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. This was this group in Jerusalem that was actually responsible for bringing Jesus to trial and ultimately his death from a human point of view. We're also told he didn't agree with that decision, but he also kind of lived out his discipleship to this point in secret. He didn't, he didn't want it to be known to the others who were the mem members of the Sanhedrin. But after Jesus dies, he makes his view now publicly known by publicly going to Pilate and asking for Jesus' body. So it's out there now. People know that Joseph is an empathizer with Jesus and his disciples. Now, let me once again affirm that we have every reason to believe that Joseph cared about and respected Jesus deeply, that this was an act of bravery and generosity in its own right as he buried Jesus in his own tomb that he had carved out for his family. But at the same time, there's no expectation here. We have no reason to believe, based upon Joseph's actions, he had any expectation that God was going to intervene in power upon Jesus' death. He, seemed, he seems resigned to the circumstances, evidenced by the fact that he buries Jesus in his tomb and, and he went away. 
And now this part is speculative, but I don't think it's too far removed from the possible reality. I wonder if his choice to openly associate with Jesus here wasn't so much out of great faith as it was out of his great grief. Sometimes when you experience loss in your life, you feel like you don't really have anything else to lose. Well, now that this is gone, what's the point? Who cares what people do to me now that I've, mattered, that I've lost what, I've mattered, what matters most to me? Your loss of a fear of man can be out of great grief and numbness to the reality of life. If this is true, you can't blame him. But that's resigning yourself to the valley of death, not hoping in God. The former, resigning yourself to the valley, kind of short-circuits the process of discipleship and leaves you in a perpetual holding pattern of sorts. The latter, hoping in God, has an eye to the horizon and an expectation that God is going to show up at any moment. Now, I don't fault Joseph here. There's much that's admirable about his response in these circumstances. But resigning yourself to the valley of death is to stop viewing life's trials through the eyes of faith. And without faith, there's no way through your valley of death. We have to keep our eyes on God with expectation and hope that he's going to work. Now, chronologically next, we'd be encountering the Marys. I just want to put them on pause for a moment. And I want to examine a couple of responses from the unbelievers we see in this passage first. Next, we have the chief priests and the Pharisees, who are perpetrators and propagators of this valley of death, of Jesus' death. They're the ones who, from a human perspective, created this situation to begin with. And now they're trying to make sure that Jesus stays dead, or at least the appearance of him staying dead. The irony here, by the way, is that of all the people in view in this passage, they are the only ones who explicitly acknowledge their awareness of Jesus' teaching that they knew he was supposed to rise from the dead. Everyone else appears to have forgotten, but it's in the forefront of their minds, and so they go to Pilate for help, not necessarily because they believe Jesus is going to supernaturally rise from the dead, but because they know that's what Jesus taught about himself, and they couldn't risk the disciples doing something that would make that out to be true somehow. The scary thing for them is that they believe that this valley of death that they have helped to create is actually righteous. It's actually the way things are supposed to be. And so they do whatever they can to keep it this way. They are those who are loving the darkness and seeking to perpetuate it, like Jesus said in John 3.19. They're fighting to keep it this way, but in so doing, they're actually fighting against their only true source of hope. There's a whole contingent of people in our world today who fit this category. They see Jesus as the problem, and they do whatever they can to eradicate that problem. Oftentimes it looks like persecuting his followers, pointing out how closed-minded and bigoted they are, and then trying to reinterpret his teachings to fit their own worldview or dismiss and explain away the things that he said about themselves as not actually being what he taught or who he was. Now there is a certain amount of culpability on their part and on the part of the Pharisees and chief priests here. But the scriptures are also clear how influential the father of lies is in blinding people from the truth. And it's important for, remember, for us to remember as Christians who are here today, we were once blind to the truth as well. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, our fight is not ultimately against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Pharisees were in one sense to blame for this valley of death, and now they're seeking to perpetuate it, and it's wrong, and they're living this inverse reality. But there's a greater enemy in view, and we need to keep that in view as well. As Christians, we navigate our way through this world and experience a lot of evil done at the hands of humans, that our fight is not ultimately against them. They are not the ultimate enemy. If we're going to be salt and light in this world, we cannot view our fellow man as the ultimate enemy. There's a greater enemy at work, and that is Satan. Nonetheless, this is one of the responses, one of the human responses to the valley of death. To make the claim that what is false, what is evil, and what is ugly is actually what is true and good and beautiful. And in so doing, directly oppose Jesus and everything that he stands for. Whether wittingly or unwittingly, that's what the chief priests and Pharisees were doing here. That was their response in the valley of death. Fourthly, we have Pilate. He's an interesting one. Pilate seems to be in denial of this valley of death. In this scene, he seems to be all too eager to supply the chief priests and the Pharisees with what they need, this Roman guard, in order to keep the situation from escalating. Politically, I'm sure, but perhaps also to shield Pilate from anything that would further amplify his already pricked conscience. Remember, his wife had already told him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. At least now Jesus was dead. But the prospect of resurrection would confirm what's already been hard for him to deny, and that is that he had had a hand in the death and the execution of an innocent man. Resurrection would prove that Jesus was something more and would further disturb the already troubled waters of Pilate's soul. But the prospect of uh, resurrection would confront him with the reality that he had made a grave mistake. And so what does he do? He does whatever he can to shield himself from this reality. And in so doing, he he ironically shields himself from the one person who could actually save him from himself. I think a lot of people in our world, sometimes even we in the church, I, live in this place in denial about the valley of death that we are walking through. They know their life isn't as it should be. They're not happy with it, but they have an even greater fear of what it would mean if Jesus is who he said he was. And so they do whatever they can to tune out the possibility of Jesus being the truth. It is true that our world, your world, will be turned upside down if you choose to trust Jesus and follow him. And that can be painful. But it's also true that he can be trusted. And it will be far more painful to keep him at arm's length and to continue to suppress the truth than to surrender your life to him. Pilate was not in a place where he was ready for this. He saw the better route to do whatever he can to keep this story from developing even more, to shield himself from this possible reality that Jesus is who he was purported to be. But he's killing himself in the process. All right, let's come full circle to the third group of disciples that we see in this passage, end on a little bit of a higher note. And that is we see 
something a little bit different in the approach of the Marys. There's two Marys here, at least in this passage, which is why I call them the Marys for convenience here. I don't know that they fully understand what's happening here, but there does seem to be on their part, in their approach to this valley of death, a reluctance to accept this situation as being final. Notice how the Marys always remain close by to Jesus. Who was it that was close by? There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. They're close by at the crucifixion. And then in verses 60 to 61, after Joseph has finished burying Jesus in his tomb and then went away, we're told that Mary's remained, sitting opposite that tomb. And that word for sitting there, that verb, actually contains a sense of a continued action. Some commentators will say it's as if they were watching, almost with expectation that something might happen. Their presence there, sitting across opposite the tomb, seems to be saying, this this can't be it. There, There must be more. Are there hints of expectation on their part for something more here? For God to work despite the situation, the valley of death? I think, I think maybe. For Mark's gospel, we know that they only depart because the Sabbath begins at 6 p.m. that day. And they do so in order to rest according to the commandment. They're following the law. But immediately, we're told, as the Sabbath has passed, they're the ones to return to the tomb. They're the ones to find it empty. And even more significantly, they are the first ones to whom Jesus appears. See, the women disciples teach us to remain close to Jesus in our valley of death because when we do, he will meet us in the midst of our suffering and our sorrow. The temptation will be, in our valleys of death, to despair or to resign ourselves to the grim reality of the circumstances we're in or to possibly try to shield ourselves and numb ourselves to it. But the women show us the path to strength and hope in our valleys of death is to draw near to him because he will draw near to us. There's one final player in this scene, also not spoken of explicitly here, but very much active and present, and that's God himself, who is sovereign over the valley of death. There's one person who was not nervous about this valley of death, it was God. It's all a part of his sovereign plan, and he will actually use the valley of death to ultimately bring about life. Didn't come as a shock to him, We know that even as we look at Jesus, who three times spoke to his disciples prior to his crucifixion and said, you know, I'm going to need to go and suffer and die. He even specified, be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. Jesus knew this was coming. This was all part of God's plan. In fact, this whole series of events, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, are first real and historical events, but they're also a roadmap for us for the valleys of death that we go through and a promise of God's sovereignty over those times in your life. See, God wasn't defeated for three days. He didn't lose his power to deal with the evil in this world for three days and then get it back all of a sudden. His power was informed by his wisdom and his power would be released when and where it was needed for life to be brought to his people. 
So it is for us when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. As David goes on to say in Psalm 23, in that valley I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, instruments of uh, protection and guidance, they will comfort me. The promise is we don't need to fear evil in whatever valley we're currently going through. Death only ever has the appearance in life of prevailing, of victory. But God's wisdom and God's power will triumph every time. And what's more than that, he will meet us in the midst of our valley every time when we risk by faith staying close to him. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge, I acknowledge at least, my tendency in trial, in darkness, in my valleys, to resort to my own means and to not turn to you. Despairing sometimes, resigning myself to that reality sometimes, shielding myself, numbing myself from the difficult things at times. Hopefully not, but maybe even opposing you at times. Embracing the opposite of what you say is true, good, and beautiful. Forgive me for that. And forgive us where we need to be forgiven of that. Father, as we consider the response of some of your disciples here, of the women, who remained close, even if they didn't fully understand, and how Jesus met them first. I pray that you would encourage our hearts. We say together, we believe, but help our unbelief. Fan into flame our faith that whatever valley we may be going through right now, we would reach out for help from you. We would wait and watch and expect for you to intervene. Strengthen our faith that we may endure in whatever trials we're going through, especially as we consider what Jesus went through for us on the cross. And may we look to his, not just his death and his burial, but his resurrection as a microcosm for all of life for us that you will prevail triumphant, and so will we then as we wait upon you. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.